If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Book of Marjorie Kemp has often been called the first autobiography in the English language, and it tells an evocative tale. Drawing on this extraordinary source, Anthony Bale has recounted the sensational life of Marjorie in his new book, Marjorie Kemp, A Mixed Life, charting her story from her unusual visions and spiritual revelations to religious controversies and her turbulent emotional experiences. Emily Briffitt spoke to Anthony to find out more. Today we are going to be talking about your new book, Marjorie Kemp, uh, Mixed Life. So I wanted to start by asking you a very contextual question of who was Marjorie Kemp? Well, Marjorie Kemp was an Englishwoman. She was born in Norfolk, in the east of England, in the um, in, in, in the late 14th century. Um, and she was a fairly normal middle class you might call woman her father was the member of parliament and the mayor of the town of Lynn where she grew up and she had a fairly normal um, upbringing Um, she got married she had 14 children and she tried um, her hand at two of the most common trades for women um, brewing and milling and they both failed And so, so far, so kind of normal bourgeois, some people would say. She's a middle-class urban woman in the later Middle Ages. And then after the... She had a very difficult pregnancy and she had a spiritual conversion after that pregnancy um, where Jesus visited her. And then over over the years of probably her 30s and 40s, she underwent a very significant um, religious um, transformation, um, which in um, the 1410s resulted in her going on various pilgrimages, being visited with what she calls the gift of tears, which was lots of crying, boisterous, plentiful crying, and travelling all over Europe. And, And then in the 1430s, when she was in her 60s, she wrote the main source we have for her life, which is called the Book of Marjorie Kemp, and is a unique document, a unique testament of somebody's life. Um, And so that's what we use really to, that's our main source of information about Marjorie Kemp. And so to answer the question, who was Marjorie Kemp? She was one of the earliest women writers in English. She's one of the only women's voices we have from this period. 
She's also a very important source in terms of the history of religion, the history of urban life, the history of travel. And it's a really unique historical source, literary source, theological source, cultural source. It tells us so much about life about 600 years ago. So could you tell us a bit more about the book of Marjorie Kemp? Is it just a chronicle of her life, just detailing what went on at it? Or is it maybe something a bit more evocative? I find it an extremely evocative source. A really, it's one of those books you go back to and find new things in it each time you read it. And I've been studying it now for nearly 30 years. The The book of Marjorie Kemp is not, strictly speaking, an autobiography, even though it's often called that. By its own account, it was narrated by Marjorie Kemp to several different scribes or amanuenses, people who are writing it down for her. And it tells, broadly speaking, the story of her life as she saw it or as she wanted it to be remembered. So it's not exactly an autobiography in the sense that it starts with her birth and ends with her death. It tells of the kind of key moments as she wanted them to be remembered, a bit more like a saint's life than an autobiography. So she's kind of crafting her biography as she as she narrated it. It tells us, it gives us a lot of detail about certain moments that were important to her. So these include things like childbirth or her negotiations with her husband, a man named John Kemp, about chastity, about um, money, about her right to go off on pilgrimage. So some really intimate moments in, in the portrait of the marriage that the book gives us. But it also gives us a lot of historical detail about England in the 1410s, 1420s, 1430s. A really interesting time, in particular about heresy. Marjorie Kemp was investigated for heresy several times. And about, about we see glimpses of politics, a kind of national, international politics that come into the book, where they impact on Marjorie Kemp. So an example is in 1417, she ends up being stuck in Bristol for quite a long time because there's no ship available to take her to Spain on pilgrimage because the ships have all been requisitioned by the king in his wars. So there's, there's, you get these kind of moments where the national or the international becomes personal and the book is an amazing source for for showing us that another example is when she's walking from what's now east yorkshire back to lynn um in probably around in 1417 she is stopped by the men that the, the, the soldiers belonging to the duke of bedford and it was duke of bedford who would later prosecute joan of arc and kemp is is arraigned she's um arrested if you like um, and interrogated. And this is really a foreshadowing of what happens to Joan of Arc 10 or so years later. And so you can use the book as a personal source. You can read it as a life story, but you can also read it as a historical source um, about 15th century England in very turbulent times. Um, and, 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 and it gives us one person's quite intimate personal experience of, 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 that, of that context. From talking a little bit about the context... Marjorie's life is obviously quite a spiritual one. So what can her story tell us of the impact of Christianity on the people of the Middle Ages? It's interesting you say that because 
in a way, one of the main tensions in the Book of Marjorie Kemp is between the spiritual and the everyday or the sacred and the profane. What's one of the reasons why I called my book Marjorie Kemp A Mixed Life. The mixed life is a technical term in medieval religion for a life which bridges the religious and the secular, often using the examples of Mary and Martha from the Bible. But it, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a life where you can combine contemplation and a, an intimate personal relationship with God with going about your daily business and living in the world. So it's a mixed life is very different from the kind of monastic life of withdrawing from the world or the eremitical life, the life of a hermit of kind of enclosing oneself and going into an anchor hold or a hermitage. So the mixed life really is keeping one foot in daily life and one foot in heavenly life or, or spiritual life. Um, and, that, and Kemp is very concerned with that. So mixed life is that term. Mixed life also... I thought nicely evoked Kemp's struggles with living a mixed life and how difficult it was to bridge these two arenas and the mixed fortunes, the mixed reception, the mixed reputation that then arises from that. The Book of Audrey Kemp is a really, really useful source at telling us about popular religion at this time in the early 15th century and people's lived experience of religion at this time. And in particular, what is sometimes called affective piety and would become what's sometimes called the devotio moderna, the modern devotion. This involved an intensely human focus on Jesus and his body, really reveling in the humanity of Jesus and both Jesus's manifestation as Christ, as an infant, as a baby, as a beloved kind of baby that you can hold, that you can touch. And Marjorie Kemp talks about how sometimes she would burst into tears when she just saw a child in the street, because it would remind her of Jesus as a child. But also Jesus on the cross, Jesus's suffering body, Jesus's bloodied, wounded, sweating, pe pained body, Jesus's dead body. These are things that people in effect who are practicing effective piety, want to touch, they want to lick, they want to be very, very close to Jesus's suffering humanity. And also Jesus as a very good looking, sexy young man, which is another pose that um, Kemp adopts. And Jesus as mother, and Jesus as the mother of mankind, Jesus as the person who gives birth to mankind. If you like, these are all different kinds of Jesuses that Marjorie Kemp talks about. So this is one thing which is very, very kind of um, up-to-date in Marjorie Kemp's spirituality is this intimate relationship with Jesus um, and also the emphasis on the Virgin Mary. In one of her visions, Marjorie Kemp makes the Virgin Mary a, what she calls a, a cordial, which is kind of a hot, hot drink, basically, to comfort her at the crucifixion. And the Book of Marjorie Kemp depicts the Virgin Mary as a kind of best friend or um, kind of auntie or godmother to Marjorie Kemp, as someone she really knows very well and is there in her life as a confidant, as a, as a guide, as an advisor. Now, lots of what I'm calling this kind of effective piety um, and up-to-date spirituality had 
been practiced in northern Germany, in the Low Countries, what's now Holland and Belgium, and northern France. And Norfolk, where Kemp lived and where Kemp grew up, was one of the main conduits for this coming from north east, sorry, northwestern Europe across the North Sea to East Anglia. And North Norwich itself, which Kemp goes to many times, was probably one of the most kind of spiritually, religiously innovative cities in the country, and most vibrant cities in the country. And Kemp's influences include books, saints, holy women coming from northwestern Europe across the North Sea to, to, to East Anglia. And so she's quite a, an up-to-date person in the way she practices religion. At the same time, she's not really that unusual. Her favourite saints are people like St. Catherine, St. Margaret, which are very common saints for women to be devoted to and men at this time. She follows local saints. She practices pilgrimage. She is very much devoted to the Eucharist. Her confessors, the practice of giving confession, are her confessors are very, very important to her. And so she's she's very much a kind of, she's practicing orthodox religion as it was in the early 15th century. Were there perhaps different expectations of female spirituality in this period as opposed to what men might be expected? Absolutely. So one of the currents that runs through the Book of Marjorie Kemp is about orthodoxy, so good, safe, correct religion, versus heresy, incorrect, wicked, diabolically inspired religion. And Kemp is very aware, because she has, she has visions, she has holy conversations with various saints, with Jesus, with Mary, with God. And she's very aware that she has to be careful that these are divinely inspired, not diabolically inspired. And this, again, is a very live issue in the 1410s. Um, and it's something that comes up in the Joan of Arc trial, actually. Are our voices and visions from God or are they from the devil? And are women more susceptible to them than men? This, these are big issues that people are talking about at the time. At the same time, Kemp also needs to show that she's not a heretic. And at this time, from the late 14th century, there's the Wycliffeite heresy in England, sometimes called the Lollard heresy. Lollard is an abusive term at the time. Following the ideas of John Wycliffe, an Oxford theologian of the late 14th century, this is best understood really as kind of what we now think of as proto-Protestantism, as an early version of Protestantism. And um, it, it argues against clerical wealth in the world. So monks owning things or monasteries owning things argues against the value of pilgrimage to relics because it says it's a kind of idolatry, argues against the Eucharist as the real body and blood of Christ, says it's a sign of the body and blood of Christ. So these are all positions which then become a very familiar in, in, in Protestantism. It's a much more, it's a congregational movement versus a clerical movement. And within Lollardy or Wycliffeitism, there's a much greater role for women. Women are allowed to or encouraged to hold what were called conventicles, which are kind of meetings of Lollards to talk about the Bible. And in Catholicism, the Bible is in Latin and is very much owned or um, supervised by the clergy, whereas in Wycliffeitism, the Bible was translated into English and is available for the whole congregation. It's available to everybody. 
And so one of the things that Kemp is very aware of is that if she's seen to be preaching, that she will then be liable to be being branded a Lollard, which and Lollards from the early 15th century have been burned to death. The first Lollard to be burnt was actually from Lynn and would have been known to Kemp. Um, he was someone who had been associated with her parish church. So she has to be very careful to stay on the right side of what's allowable as a woman. Um, and, the, and she, by her own account, she was very careful. She's interrogated several times, including at, um, by the Archbishop of York at his palace at Kaywood, which is just outside York. And she is also interrogated at Hessel on the banks of the Humber near Ely. She has an audience with the Archbishop of Canterbury at Lambeth Palace and an audience with the Bishop of Lincoln at Lincoln Cathedral. So she's seeing some of the greatest men, these figures of masculine clerical authority, and having to answer theological questions to them, which she does well. She does safely. I mean, we know historically, but also through the book, that as a woman, she's more vulnerable. She doesn't have a university education or a clerical role to back her up. And she's somewhat reliant on her husband and on her father's status, which she adduces several times, she will say. But I, my father was X, or she will appear with her husband. So she needs to rely, and, and with her confessor, she needs to rely on the men around her quite often. There were some options for some women, and Kemp is clearly trying to exercise her options. Um, like most options, you have more options if you have money, but she she's from quite a well-off background. She has access to money and also male supporters. Her family are very involved in local government in North Norfolk. Um, and so she's not a nobody, if you like. She manages to use her social cachet and her financial resources. Um, and she also has some quite powerful friends um, that we glimpse at various points. Um, but she's not a peasant. She's, she, she's got some networks that she can exploit and be, becoming a vowess. The other women who we know from this time who become vowesses also tend to be from this kind of middle to upper band of society. Marjorie seems to have become a vowess in later life. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so the word vowess means that you've taken a vow, and obviously it's a female ending, a, a woman, an avowed woman, a woman who has taken a vow. And usually women who became vowesses, they were very often widows. Kemp wasn't a widow, so she became a vowess while she was married, but that could happen. And a vowess made a vow to Jesus as if they were Jesus's wife. And Kemp actually has a wedding ring um, signalling her marriage to Jesus. Um, I, I've, I write about this in the book and there's a nice picture of similar rings from the time. Um, being a, an avowed woman, being a vowess, was one of the ways in which women could gain a degree of independence and status without being married to an actual man. But it, it's not to be confused with being a nun or going into holy orders. A vowess could live in the world, could be part of the world, could be live a secular life. 
it was quite a popular thing in London and in the south of England and Yorkshire in the 15th century. There's quite a lot of evidence of, of women taking these kinds of vows. And it was a relatively informal kind of identity. How you defined it was somewhat up to the individual practitioner of how they practiced their vowed identity, their, their vowous identity. Kemp doesn't talk about herself as a vowess as if it's an identity in itself, but she clearly was. She'd undertaken this kind of marriage. She describes the marriage to the Godhead, to God, if you like, in Rome, that she undertakes a, a mystical marriage, a spiritual marriage, emulating St. Bridget of Sweden. And this gives her an element of autonomy. When Kemp came back to England, she describes how she lived apart from her husband. They lived, she lived in a different house, which would have been very unusual. And she was able to do this as a vowess. She didn't want people to gossip because part of being a vowess is retaining one's chastity. And she didn't want people to gossip that she hadn't kept her vow to Jesus by living with John Kemp. So she lives apart. And so she does have this kind of, you could call it isolation or you could call it independence that other women, most married women, don't have. And so through that particular spiritual route, she's able to carve out a place for herself. When John Kemp becomes unwell, she has to go home and look after him. But before that, she has this independent life as a vowed woman. The wedding ring is one of her most precious possessions, and she talks about this, that she nearly loses it in a hostel when she's in Italy. And she says, what I call my wedding ring of Christ has been stolen. But actually, it just fallen under the bed. So it was a miracle that she found it. I suppose, in a way, this brings us back to her spiritual conversion and the fact she experienced divine communications. Could you tell us a bit more about this? I think a conversion is a is a good term because she the book itself describes how she's turned from a sinful wretch into a um, a follower of Christ and into a and, and, to, and someone who is calmed within herself. The chronology of the book is quite um, turbulent, shall we say? So it's not clear what happens first and what happens next. But she, after she has had her first child, her son, also named John, like his father. She's had a very difficult pregnancy. And she, after she has the baby, things get worse for her. She becomes very frantic. She is in a frenzy all the time. She has visions of devils. They come and pour at her body and touch her. And they breathe fire around her. They kind of seem to be biting her. And she throws herself around the room and harms herself. And she describes all this in great detail in the book. And the devils tell her to reject her father and mother, to slander all the people around her and to, you know, kind of cut herself off from all the people who love her. And sometimes she is locked in her room by her husband. She's shackled. Sometimes she scratches herself with her fingernails. And um, one time she actually bites herself um, so hard 
um, on her hand that she says that she bore this wound of her bite for the rest of her life. So she's chained up in her room. And then one day she is, this is probably around 1394. So she's probably about 20 years of, of age. And she's locked in her bedroom, her bedchamber. And she's had these terrible demonic apparitions. And then she has a different kind of vision one day, which is that Jesus appears at the end of her bed. And he appears as the most handsome, the most beautiful, the most charming, the most good looking man she could imagine. And he's wearing a purple silk gown and he sits on her bed and has a very kind, blessed expression, she says. And he says to her, daughter, why have you forsaken me when I never forsook you? And then he says these words to her and he just disappears. But he doesn't disappear kind of in a frightening way. The words she uses are fair and easily, kind of elegantly and steadily and calmly. And the whole vision she has here of Jesus coming to sit on the end of her bed and to um, comfort her steadies her in her frenzy, in her delirium, and comforts her. And from this point on, she starts this journey towards conversion, towards getting herself back in her right mind. She says in Middle English that she was out of her mind, and the, the journey towards being back in her mind starts here. Um, she's allowed to have the keys to the buttery where the food and drink is kept. And then she starts kind of going out and her life gets better. It doesn't get better all of a sudden. It's, she has several false starts, several temptations. There's a moment of temptation where a very good looking man at church asks her if she'll have sex with him. And she says, yes. So she turns out to have sex with him. And then he says, actually, I was just testing you. And she's totally humiliated and she realises that she's strayed from the path. There's also temptations about clothing and about business and about money. But basically, the story of the Book of Marjorie Kemp, if you like, starts in her bedroom with this terrible ordeal, this terrible pregnancy and um, the experience of giving birth. And so we're in this microcosm of her life in her bedroom. The book takes us to Jerusalem and to Rome and to Santiago de Compostela. It takes us to the most blessed sites as far as she could have gone from her house in Norfolk. And the book then ends back in her bedroom with the death and illness of John Kemp, her husband, as an old man. And Kemp's life seems to have ended like this too, with her back in Kings Lynn, back in Norfolk, as a member of the local guild and as a well-off woman in the town of Lynn. Um, and so you can see the shape of the book as being home, universe, back to home, or from the kind of intimate life to the global life and back to the intimate life. And so when she comes back to Norfolk, by the end of the book, her conversion is complete. If there was one shape you had to put on her life, that is kind of the arc I would give it, is that it starts off as a very local book becomes a universal book and then comes back to the local. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It does seem that you can hear Kemp's voice at certain points in the book. There's a kind of homeliness and a kind of intimacy um, and a kind of 
sense of an eyewitness to lots of the things that she talks about. She seems to have led quite an extraordinary life, but one that was almost plagued by emotional crises. So could you tell us a little bit more about how this affected her or what we know about how this affected her? What does her book tell us of her thoughts and feelings? So the book of Marjorie Kemp is a hugely valuable document, both for the history of emotions, which is very much a growing field now in historical studies, and also for the history of medicine and the history of illness. And the two are somewhat linked in the book of Marjorie Kemp because she talks about words like pain as um, being linked to shame. So what is a physical perception or a physical feeling is often connected to an emotional state. And so the dividing line between emotion and um, the body is somewhat um, blurred in the book of Marjorie Kemp, as it often is in this kind of affective piety. We'd often think of this as an affect, as affective drives. Now, in the book of Marjorie Kemp, I would say that illness, pain, suffering, both emotional and physical, these become embraced by Kemp in two different ways. One is because they are a key part of what we think of as her imitatio Christi, her imitation of Christ. She needs to suffer like Jesus to emulate the suffering of Christ on the cross and Christ and Christ's kind of exceptional status as a heroic sufferer. But also because she sees, as many people did at the time, illness as being a valuable moment for self-transformation, um, whether it's emotional illness or physical illness. Throughout the Book of Marjorie Kemp, time and time again, we see various illnesses, which include this kind of mental distress, where she talks about going out of your mind, but also things like leprosy. She describes how for many years in the 1420s, when she's in her 50s, she suffers a kind of pain in her side and some kind of internal ailment. We're not quite sure what it is. But this, again, seems to be a hinge for her to transform herself. There's a wonderful part of the book where she has this kind of, what we might now think of as an, an eye ailment, where she sees dust, little motes of dust floating in her vision at all times. But she turns this into a vision of God and into the very, actually quite beautiful vision of the quietness of God. So the book can very frequently transform suffering, pain, shame, crying, things that we would tend to think of as crises into moments of glory or moments of heroism. Readers often find that Kemp's crying is a particular focus. And actually, the image on the front of the book has a picture of the Marta Dolorosa Virgin Mary in tears. And the crying is one of Kemp's distinctive gifts. Um, she clearly annoyed people she was with at the time by crying, by crying very loudly, by crying for a very long time, by crying constantly. She says this by her own admission, um, that, she, that the crying was disruptive. But at the same time, the crying is a cherished emotional state that for her marks the authenticity of her encounter with religion and with God. Um, 
she receives her first divinely ordained bout of crying when she's in Jerusalem at Calvary. And the crying then travels with her and comes back home with her and becomes one of her distinctive styles. She's not unique as a holy weeper. Um, we know that from this time, actually, that guidebooks to Jerusalem told pilgrims where to cry and how to cry and how to kind of mark the emotional zenith of one's pilgrimage. And we also know that other saints, other female mystics and female saints who Kemp had read about, like um, Mary Duany, they were also holy weepers. So um, crying was something that was culturally embraced. It w and it was understood as an an outward sign of an inner state, if you like. Um, and Kemp seems to have been, she seems to have, when she talks about this gift of tears, she turned her, the crying into, into a cherished gift, into something that she was very proud of. Other than this crying and this weeping, what other ways does Kemp actually express this spirituality? Okay, so the crying is just one part of Kemp's religious identity or religious performance, you might call it. So one of the most important parts of Kemp's religious performance or identity is confession and seeking advice and the counsel of religious authorities. These are mainly men, but they include two women as well. One of the women is Julian of Norwich. Um, she was a hermit in Norwich and there was also another hermit anchoress that Kemp consulted in York but she also then will find confessors who tend to be priests monks and she finds them all over the world wherever she is she will find a somebody to both confess to but also to give her spiritual guidance and this is a very important part she she's if you Think about it as a kind of education. She shows you she's very keen to learn from these kinds of holy men um, and um, often very educated men. Another part of her religious identity, as I've already kind of alluded to, is pilgrimage. Pilgrimage was used in the Middle Ages for self-improvement, self-transformation. It was also used as a medical procedure. You would go to a saint's shrine to make oneself better. You'd go to a saint's shrine or to uh, the sites associated with Jesus's life to gain an indulgence. This was one of the things which really stimulated Kemp's pilgrimages. So you were effectively released from one's prior sins and from having to pay for them in suffering in purgatory after death. Um, so you'd get to heaven more quickly, basically. And... Pilgrimage at the time was um, very, very common. Everybody made some kind of pilgrimage. Every Christian made some kind of pilgrimage in the West. In the West. These could be small, small local pilgrimages to a well or to your local parish church or to your local cathedral. And there were specific pilgrimages, you know, for a toothache or for your ch child's health or if you were going on a journey or this kind of thing, you would undertake a specific pilgrimage. But the best pilgrimages you could take the three great pilgrimages were to Jerusalem, Rome, and Santiago de Compostela. And these are the places that Kemp is told 
around 1410 by God to take herself to. These are the three most prestigious pilgrimages. They're the three most spiritually beneficial pilgrimages where you get the most pardon and plenary remission for your sins. But she wasn't unique in taking these journeys. At the time she went to Jerusalem, you'd think, you know, this is a very, very intimidating journey for a woman to undertake on her own. She went to Venice. She will have joined a pilgrim's galley. It was quite an organised industry. She paid lots of money and been taken on what we might think of as a kind of package tour to Jerusalem. She wasn't an independent traveller. Strictly speaking, she was travelling in a group of like-minded people. And we have records of other women, usually quite wealthy women, taking these, these similar journeys. She also undertook lots and lots of pilgrimages in the British Isles too. Um, she went to see the, there was the file of the Holy Blood of Christ at Hales in Gloucestershire. There, she went to Beverley in, in Yorkshire. She went to Canterbury to see the Shrine of Thomas Becket. So these are also key shrines in, in England. And she went to Walsingham in Norfolk, not far from Lynn, to see the um, various shrines there. And Walsingham was um, one of the most popular pilgrimage sites in England. So pilgrimage could, it really frames Kemp's life that um, the mo- and, and well, the way she remembers her life, she is told as a young woman to go to, or as a youngish woman, um, a woman probably um, in her late 30s, early 40s, to go to Jerusalem, Rome and Santiago. She does that. And then as an older woman in her 60s, um, which in at the time was considered quite elderly, she goes off on an unauthorised pilgrimage to northern Germany, to Vilsnack and to Aachen, and then makes her way back to Norfolk via Calais. And um, Vilsnack and Aachen were also very prestigious, very popular pan-European pilgrimage shrines. And by the time she was in her 60s, Kemp had visited the main pilgrimage sites of Latin Christendom of Western Europe. And she'd really accomplished something quite remarkable. It was quite common to die on a pilgrimage. Um, It was quite a gruelling trip. It was an expensive trip. And this would have given her a certain kind of religious prestige, but also a kind of social status that she'd made these journeys and come home. Other kinds of religious experience we see in the book include a really wonderful portrait of a Palm Sunday procession, which chimes with what we know about that procession in in England. Lots of material about um, devotion to particular saints, to female saints, and also lots of information about the kind of literature that she'd read, that she'd been exposed to, that her confessors had read to her. So we know that Kemp couldn't read herself, but we know that she had um, texts read to her. And it, it tells us quite a lot about the currents of religious writing between England, around England, and England and the continent at that at that time. Again, she wasn't unique as a woman for doing this, but she was quite unusual. The written word is very important to her. So how did she come to put down her story? So I've just said that the written word was very important to Kemp. And so it's not a surprise that she then wanted a book. The book what we now know of as the Book of Marjorie Kemp is something like A Saint's Life, 
apart from it can't be a saint's life because she was still alive when she wrote it. So it's got a crucial difference to a saint's life where you need, a saint's life is written after you're dead, after you've suffered your martyrdom, and it's up to your followers to establish your cult. You can't do it yourself. But the, the but it's also similar to two other kinds of what we think of as life writing in the Middle Ages. One is the confession. She talks, it's, it's, so it's like she's narrating a confession. And the other is the travel guide where she's talking about the places she's been to. So these are kind of the saint's life, the confession and the travel guide are all ways in which we see the narrator, the narrative, the observant eye establishing itself in the Middle Ages. So the book is very important to her. And it starts, the book as we have it, starts with an account of its own difficult genesis that she tried repeatedly to have it written down. I won't go into too much detail about that because it's an interesting thing to read and it's also a bit complicated. But basically she needs to go to several scribes to get someone to write it effectively. One of her scribes can't see um, he tries to wear glasses and that doesn't help. And then suddenly he is able to see there's a kind of divine minor miracle that he's able to see. And the birth of the book is very, very difficult, but it gets written. We, the, 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 the Book of Marjorie Kemp talks about this in quite a lot of detail, though actually the manuscript we now have, there's only one manuscript of the Book of Marjorie Kemp and it's not the original manuscript. We know it's a copy. And so there's there's a slight remove from the book as she narrated it to what we have today, even though it does seem that you can hear Kemp's voice at certain point, points in the book. There's a kind of homeliness and a kind of intimacy um, and a kind of sense of an eyewitness to lots of the things that she talks about. I mean, I don't see any reason to doubt the narrative of the book as she recorded it. So, you know, for example, she'll talk about how in Rome, one of her benefactors gave her a hamper of food each day and a little bit of wine. And these kinds of very intimate details, very kind of minute details, uh, they have a, this authenticity. But it's written in Norfolk language. It's written in the Norfolk language that Kemp spoke um, in dialect. And we know that the manuscript that we do have today, which is in the British Library in London, that that was written by a man called Richard Salthouse, who was a monk in Norfolk. And he probably wrote it just a few years after the original composition of the book, um, in the, yeah, within about 10 years of Kemp's death. And, um, and so it's pretty close to Kemp's life. It's quite a long book. It's, it follows Kemp's life. And it ends with some prayers. And so it leaves the reader actually with a sense of Kemp's voice there um, because it closes with an account of how she, the distinctive way in which she would make her prayers. And so you actually do, she does kind of get the last word, if you like, of having her voice coming through. But throughout the book, it's written in the third person about her calling her the creature, which doesn't mean that she's a kind of beast or an animal. It means that she's a create a thing created by God. She's one of God's created things. So I would say reading the book of Marjorie Kemp, it's it's a great if if anyone anyone who's interested in the past, anyone who's interested in how people lived, but also how people narrated themselves, how people 
made sense of their lives in the past. It's an amazing source. And I would refer listeners to the book of Marjorie Kemp itself as a really wonderful read. And I'm sure you know, people will find different things in it. But it's also quite a turbulent narrative. It doesn't really say things in order. It's clear that several people worked on it at different times. And actually, in the manuscript itself, there are bits crossed out and there are glosses and commentaries in the margins, some of which we know were put there in the early 16th century by Carthusian monks who owned the book then in their monastery at a place called Mount Grace in Yorkshire, in North Yorkshire. They owned the manuscript then. They weren't the original owners, but they ended up getting their hands on it somehow. And they seem to have read the manuscript as evidence of mystical spirituality, mysticism, of divine communication, and been very interested in it. And they marked their comments, their favourite bits, their queries in the margins. How did this source then come to survive the centuries? It's an individual woman's narrative. It's not necessarily a document of states or of national religion. How did one woman's story come to survive? So we know that the Book of Marjorie Kemp reached a reasonably wide audience in the Middle Ages because there were two extracts printed from it in the in around 1500 and in the early 1520s. Now, these extracts removed lots of Marjorie Kemp's individual personality from the book, and they focused on her mystical vision, her mystical communication with God. But they do show us that there was an audience for this kind of thing, and that Kemp's book reached part of this audience in the 50 years after her death. However, she wasn't made a saint, and there's not really any evidence of people leaving money to her memory or in Lynn at the time of any attempts to um, have special devotion to her or make a cult of her memory. At the same time, Richard Salthouse, the scribe of the existing manuscript, was copying down her life in Norwich Cathedral. And so her book was clearly of interest to educated, established men. So even though there's only one manuscript, I don't think that should mean that it wasn't reasonably widely read at the time. The Book of Marjorie Kemp, as an example of Catholic religion and pilgrimage, Eucharistic devotion, this kind of thing, was exactly the kind of thing that was destroyed during the Reformation. And it's exactly the kind of thing that people didn't want to be found on them or you know found in their library. And so we know from similar texts that this kind of thing was destroyed or hidden and so actually one manuscript surviving is not that unusual there's a analogous case which i write about in the book of a woman called elizabeth barton sometimes called the maid of kent the holy maid of kent and she was incredibly popular her but in in the early 16th century as a mystic and as a prophetess and her books and writings about her were banned by Henry VIII, and not a single one survives. And so even though we know she was very popular, the fact that nothing survives doesn't mean that, you know, there wasn't stuff circulating around her. Anyway, so there's this one manuscript of the Book of Marjorie Kemp, which seems to have been 
owned by the Carthusian house in Mount Grace in the early 16th century, and then possibly owned by the Carthusians in London around this time too. And then the manuscript disappears until the 1930s, when it was rediscovered by accident in Derbyshire, in the house of a man called Colonel Butler Bowden. And he had a house party with some friends over and they were playing ping pong and somebody stepped on the ball and so they needed a new ball. He went to his cupboard to get some new balls and two manuscripts fell out, two ancient manuscripts that had been in the family for years. And the Butler Bowden family were an old Catholic family. One of the books is now in Lambeth Palace Library. It's called The Broughton Missal and is a religious book from the 15th century. And the other one was the manuscript of the Book of Marjory Kemp. But nobody recognised it at the time. But there happened to be somebody playing ping pong who worked at the Victorian Albert Museum in London. So then this amazing chase started to identify the manuscript and see what it is. And an American medievalist named Hope Emily Allen was living in England at the time, living in London and researching mysticism. And she recognised the Book of Marjorie Kemp from the extracts that had been printed in the 1500s and recognised it as the full text. So it was only really, really rediscovered in the late 30s and a translation was published in 1940 and a scholarly edition published a couple of years later during the Second World War. And Kemp only became really widely read in the 1980s and 1990s, thanks, I think, to feminist criticism kind of widening the syllabus and stopping regarding the book as a curiosity or as some kind of strange thing. And now it's very frequently read by history students, by English students, by people interested in religion, by people interested in women's history, all kinds of things. But there, yes, the manuscript is now in the British Library. It's often on display there, but it's still so far the unique manuscript. Another one hasn't turned up. I guess bringing this to modern day, I think my final question for you would be, from a modern reader's perspective, how do you think we should now see Marjorie? I thought about this a lot when I was writing my book because the book is the first volume in a new series being published by Reaction called Medieval Lives. And I think it's really nice that this series starts with Marjorie Kemp. It doesn't start with a king or someone, you know, really powerful. It doesn't start with Geoffrey Chaucer or, you know, Dante or somebody. It starts with um, Marjorie Kemp. And so it very much puts her as a middle-class person, as a provincial person, as a woman, as someone who didn't become a saint within into history, into the historical narrative, into the canon, if you like. And that's really great that we've expanded our definitions of who counts, of whose voices count, to include someone like Marjorie Kemp. You can read the book of Marjorie Kemp and think about her life in so many different ways. And I don't think, you know, I wouldn't want my book to be a way of shutting down debate about her. I actually want it to open up debate about her. I don't think in any way, shape or form that I've had the last word on her or that I've said anything that other people necessarily will accept, that people will read her very differently. But I do think the book speaks to the contemporary moment in all kinds of surprising ways. And each time you go back to Kemp's life, you see this. So if you think about, for example, 
misery memoirs and autobiographies of failure, which is quite a, a popular contemporary genre of writing, you can also trace those back into Marjorie Kemp, into this kind of embrace of humility and shame, this reveling in embarrassment, this sense of failure that Kemp talks about. It's very similar to many um, pieces of writing from the last 20 or 30 years. Also, the unreliable narrator, the unreliable I. This is very much a kind of standard thing in modern writing, but it's something that Kemp, you can really see as, as being a, a forerunner of that. The book, as I said, always has more in it. Each time I go back to it and Kemp's life, there's so much, so much historical work that's being done and yet to be done about her children, about her, some of the people she comes into, comes into contact with. We don't know who they are. We, they haven't been um, investigated as fully as they might. So there's still a lot more, I think, to find out and to fill in those contexts that the book sets up. And sometimes we get a glimpse of, but we don't get a very detailed view of. And also what we've seen in the last really 20 years or so are all kinds of creative responses to, to the book of Marjorie Kemp, various plays and, and and her appearance in all kinds of popular literature. She's actually does appear in Margaret Atwood's latest book, The Testaments, which is the kind of um, follow on to The Handmaid's Tale. And there's a place called the Marjorie, Marjorie Kemp Retreat House, where um, one woman who um, cries a lot is sent to, and she's told, you'll be a different woman soon. Um, and I write about this quite a lot in, at the end of the book about Marjorie Kemp today. Marjorie Kemp on the internet, Marjorie Kemp in contemporary retellings. So she has a very vibrant contemporary life as, as being made new each time. That was Anthony Bale, Professor of Medieval Studies at Birkbeck. His book, Marjorie Kemp, A Mixed Life, is out now published by Reaction Books. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.